It's the Media Law Podcast. Coming up, we get some international perspectives on the public interest defence under the Defamation Act 2013. Paul and I have an argument about a recent Supreme Court defamation case, and we put in a brief mention of the government's white paper on internet regulation. Hello and welcome to the Media Law Podcast. I'm Tom Bennett. For this episode, Paul Ragg and I sat down with leading scholars in defamation law from three different common law jurisdictions, the United States, Canada and South Africa, to discuss public interest defences to defamation claims. In particular, we started by thinking about what English law might learn from these other jurisdictions as the courts here start to interpret Section 4 of the Defamation Act 2013. Despite over five years having elapsed since that piece of legislation was passed, it is only in recent months that we've had the first appellate decision on Section 4 in the case of Economo and Defratus, which listeners may recall us discussing in an earlier podcast. After that discussion, Paul and I will also be talking about two pieces of news, a very recent Supreme Court case on the meaning element of a defamation claim, and the government's white paper on internet content regulation. So we start with our roundtable discussion. Just before we play it, I should clarify what exactly this section for defence is, for the benefit of listeners who are not experts in defamation law. A defamation claim is about getting damages for harm to reputation. The primary defence in English law to a defamation claim is the defence of truth, whereby if the defendant can prove that what they said about the claimant was true, they will not be liable for the harm they have caused. Section 4 establishes an alternative defence, which may be pleaded in circumstances where the truth of the allegation cannot be proved. This Section 4 defence applies if the defamatory statement was on a matter of public interest and if the defendant reasonably believed that publishing the statement was in the public interest. It replaced a similar but arguably narrower common law defence that was known as the Reynolds defence. And you'll hear some reference to Reynolds in the discussion that follows. The old Reynolds defence, which the 2013 Act expressly abolishes and replaces with Section 4, provided a defence of responsible journalism. I am joined for this discussion uh, by Paul Ragg. Hello. Uh, from the US, Russell Weaver. Happy to be here. Uh, from South Africa, Dario Milo. Hello. And from Canada, by David Mangan. Hello. We have in this country in recent years reformed defamation law by statute. We've brought in Section 4 of the Defamation Act and we're just starting to get some case law on its interpretation, but there's nothing very conclusive yet. Um, so we're, we're looking for, I suspect, ways in which Section 4 could usefully be interpreted by the courts. Now, there are similar public interest defences uh, that operate uh, in different jurisdictions around the world, and we're lucky to have experts in the law of those jurisdictions around us. So um, let me throw this out just to the group. What can 
we learn about public interest defenses, about their strengths and their weaknesses, problems we may encounter, solutions that we could um, find from the way that they operate in the jurisdictions in which you have expertise. One of the problems that I find, this is Russ Weaver, one of the problems that I find is the difficulty of defining the term public interest. It's certainly a difficulty that we've had in the U.S. We, you know, in theory we treat private individuals differently depending on whether it's a private individual involved in a matter of public interest or a person involved in a matter of purely private interest. But the, the definitions have never been entirely satisfactory. And when I look at other countries, for example, Australia, I see the same problem. Things that I might say are really public interest, the courts don't necessarily see it that way. Yeah, Dario here from South Africa. We are fairly disappointed, I think, that, um, that England has sought to codify its uh, defense of, uh, of reasonable publication, the Reynolds defense, because... Um, our courts adopted that defence essentially um, as far back as 1998 um, and since then it has developed into quite a, um, quite a uh, robust defence for the press and for the media generally in um, publishing really important stories on matters of public concern. Our definition of public interest is very broad so that the only... Um, aspects in our case law of stories that would not qualify as public interest stories would be stories about the private lives of um, of uh, public or private individuals. So uh, celebrity, tittle-tattle, etc. would not be covered, but generally speaking, most of the significant stories um, that the media has been able to publish, largely because they're emboldened by the um, Reynolds-type defence we have, would certainly qualify as public interest stories. <coughs> David from uh, Canada. Canada has largely followed the UK. So the public interest defense that was developed in Reynolds uh, was adopted in Canada about 10 years ago now in a case called Grant versus Torstar. Um, so Canada seems to follow to a certain extent but I would echo what Dario said, that what is remarkable about the Defamation Act 2013, and in particular Section 4, is that it has codified, not only codified, this new defense, but explicitly rejected the common law. And this is something that I, I don't think enough attention was given to, because if if we put it quite crudely, it was quite a slap against the courts. The courts had developed this defense over a long time, and Parliament was stepping in to say, that stops here. And something new, theoretically, I think is Tom's question, what happens from here? Something new is developing. So I would hope, from a Canadian perspective, that that isn't adopted, the codification, that the common law is allowed to grow uh, along the lines of this defense because it, it is really a tremendous time of development as we've turned into the 21st century. A number of common law jurisdictions have 
done a lot to expand protection of free speech. Dario, I was going to ask you about um, this justifiable mm. public interest uh, defence, which just crops up in one South African case. Well, what can you tell us about that? Mm. Well, well, you know, for for South African lawyers, because of the Roman and Roman Dutch origins of our law of defamation, we've always been familiar with this concept of public interest. Um, we, for instance, do not permit um, the media or any defamation defendant to escape liability simply because they publish the truth. There always had to be an element of public interest. So it was truth plus public interest, which would um, would be a defence. Uh, and that was to, rather confusingly, also protect privacy as well as, as reputation. So our law of defamation actually protects both interests through the, the, that uh, form of, of public interest requirement. Then when we turn to the defense of reasonable publication, which, which essentially we got from Australia um, and its cases and the Reynolds case in, in England, um, that also requires public interest as a, or doesn't require, but it certainly um, provides protection for public interest stories as one of the factors that you take into account the sort of Nichols list we have a similar list in South Africa. So public interest comes into play there too. And as I said, we've always taken a very broad definition. As you mentioned, there's recently, fairly recently been a case in South Africa where our Supreme Court of Appeal, two of the five judges said there actually should be a new defense um, which develops, which, which they term justifiable political speech. It's a narrow defense and they borrow the the, the narrow um, political communication jurisprudence of Australia to say, you know, really, if you are in the heartland of political discussion, that should be a separate defence. But then they go on to say, but even in that kind of defence, you need to focus on the conduct of the, of the journalist. The, the conduct has to be uh, not negligent, has to be reasonable, reliable sources, verification, right of reply, etc. To my mind, and I, I've written on this, um, in fact, therefore, the justifiable political speech defence doesn't do any more work for the media than the existing reasonable publication defence. And it, in fact, muddies the water because arguably it, in fact, chips away at the broader reasonable publication on all matters of public interest, not just political speech defence. Um, since that case, very other uh, very few cases have in fact taken that up and, and it's been largely ignored at the appellate division level so that essentially it's correct to say that we still largely have a defence of reasonable publication on matters of all public concern, not just political speech. So another thing that perhaps we might want to talk about is that um, the other aspect of Reynolds which was particularly impressive was its its emphasis on the quality of the journalism in terms of the standards of uh, journalism in uh, verifying information, the steps taken to obtain a sort of right of reply. Now in the 21st century of course we're seeing uh, an increase of preponderance of uh, citizen journalism and citizen journalism being taken very seriously. Does that standard need to be read down? to cater for the citizen journalist who's not a inverted commas professional journalist uh, or does it need to be maintained with a very high standard so that the quality of citizen journalism is brought up at least where something defamatory happens that is in the public interest to talk about? 
the, the reality is in an internet era, as we start moving towards a broader, broader participation, you're not going to maintain the same standards. I think it's going to be extremely difficult to do that. Um, now, I don't necessarily regard that as a negative. I mean, in other words, I think, I think we're, it's, as we've seen newspapers declining in the U.S. from lack of advertising, lack of subscribers, um, these internet journals are really starting to fill a void. <clears throat> and so I'm one of the people who thinks that we ought to be treating them like ordinary journalists, even though we don't have the editorial controls that you have with regular newspapers. And, and quite frankly, the lack of editorial controls can be seen as a weakness as well as a strength in the sense that, you know, that it, it, it's a weakness because you may not have quite the quality controls you would have with an ordinary newspaper. But on the other hand, you're going to encourage people to publish and you're enabling people to publish and more than going to get wrong some. Just the nature of publication. In Ontario, in Canada, they passed legislation uh, that they call anti-SLAP legislation. Right. SLAP being strategic litigation against public participation. And this seems to be an attempt to allow people in an internet era to speak about public interest topics without being, they can be sued, but without necessarily being unprotected. There's a statute there that they can apply to that can provide for protection. So I wonder if for citizen journalists, will we need a proliferation of this kind of legislation that explicitly recognizes not just citizen journalists, but people in general making comments online about matters in public interest? And just to add to, to both of those perspectives, I think in, in our law, the, there's been quite a bit of debate and discussion about whether the reasonable publication defense extends to non-media defendants. So your citizen journalist, your um, high-profile blogger, your trade unionist who communicates to thousands of people, etc. Um, and the better view, in my uh, view, is that anyone who's communicating to, if you call it the world at large, publicly in, in that sense, should benefit from the defense of, of um, the, all the defenses that the media have available to them. So they shouldn't only be subject to um, proving the defense of truth with legally admissible evidence um, and public interest. They should also be able to say that in all the circumstances we acted reasonably and we should therefore avoid liability on that basis. It does raise the issue of whether the reasonableness standard will be applied differently where you have um, citizens who are, have not got the resources and are not professional publishers of information. They don't have the, the newsrooms, they don't have the editorial um, uh, steps and processes and checks and balances. Our laws pretty much, the jury's out on, on, on how that will be applied, but I certainly think that, um, you know, it would impoverish our public discourse if we don't afford citizen journalists some sort of leeway in, in some or other manner anti-slap is, is one example, um, you know, uh, being a bit more lenient in how we apply the reasonable publication defense might be another. I might add that some years ago I was invited to, the UN invited me to go to Vienna 
and they had brought together academics, journalists, and I think some defamation lawyers. And one of the questions raised there was this issue of should we treat bloggers and others like journalists? And I can tell you that, it, that on the first day, the journalists were, were adamantly opposed to this idea. You know, they said, no, 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 they don't have the editorial controls, they shouldn't be treated like us. <clears throat> the interesting thing is that by the end of the third day, most everybody was in agreement that, that they should be treated the same. And part of the reason for that is that one of the things we received during this conference were country-by-country country reports of what was happening in those countries. In some countries, if you were, like Mexico, if you were a journalist who was actively exposing corruption, your lifespan is not very long. So what they, one of the things we learned was that a lot of the best journalism is being done by anonymous bloggers. And that's how they stay alive. Mm -hmm. Well, there was that book, Twitters and Twitter and Tear Gods, that outlined the um, Arab Spring, yeah. and out and talked about how important social media were in bringing that out. It wasn't official journalism. We look at it in orthodox sense. Yeah. Uh, and Zainab Tufekci wrote the book and she said part of it was the government didn't understand the platforms at the time but now since then they have really clamped down we see that in countries that I'd like to visit in the future not so I won't name <laughs> yes but the interesting thing about the Arab Spring was <clears throat> it, it really illustrates as you were suggesting the importance of these non-media sources because if you think about Egypt 50 years ago, government had control of the press, radio, television. And they still had that control when the Arab Spring arose, and they actively tried to control what was said about what was going on. But it wasn't effective because of these alternate methods of communication which allowed people to communicate so they knew what was going on, they could coordinate protests, they could do lots of things. I think one of the interesting things about that is, I always, I've always said that Mubarak's fatal mistake was that he shut down the internet during these, during these uprisings. You know, and, and you know, Marx at one point said that you know, religion is the opiate of the masses. And, I think today the internet is the opiate of the masses, and so what happened was, I mean, I could have, if you, if you thought it through, you'd known that it was going to be a big mistake to shut down the internet, because those people who weren't participating in the protest were probably occupied with the internet when you shut the internet down completely. They got nothing to do. So in fact, the street protests swelled dramatically after we tried to shut down the internet. Well, it's interesting that um, we should be talking about the, the internet in, in those terms because the European Court of Human Rights uh, generally has said the advantages that traditional media have in law. Uh, there's no reason why new forms of media shouldn't be able to, to take advantage of those uh, rights. 
at the same time, we're beginning to see a sort of duality, which I think traditional media is seeking to encourage in the context of the fake news uh, debate, in which journalists are quite happy for the internet to be regulated in some way to try and filter out fake news. And to my mind, there's a sort of sense of history repeating here because particularly the UK experience was that when uh, broadcast journalism began in its infancy, the traditional source of the media refused to recognise broadcast journalists as journalists. They saw them as something else entirely and so were quite happy for broadcast journalists to be heavily regulated. Now, where does that take us in the uh, debate? Well, it's, it's interesting. You know, in the U.S., we've had these medium-specific standards of, of review, and we've treated print media differently than the broadcast media, which we treat differently than the than the internet. Um, and that also might have made sense 50 years ago. I'm not sure it makes sense today because when you look at all the different forms of media, they're crossing the boundaries regularly. I mean, radio used to be, you used to have a limited number of spectra, so you could say we ought to impose fiduciary duties on people who could have radio stations. In the internet era, you can have an infinite number of radio stations. And when you look at newspapers, they will have websites today. Um, they will broadcast videos. Um, they might even they might even give coverage of live interviews. Where you can where you can see the interviews streamed on on over the the newspaper's website. And really, when you look at the other media, you've got this similar crossing. So it strikes me that these distinctions between different types of media might have made sense 50 years ago, but the the reasoning to some extent is collapsing in light of of this, this um, interaction between the different forms of media. Yeah, no, that's absolutely true and the anomalies are just uh, endless because I act for instance for a number of broadcasters in South Africa and if they broadcast on their television news network they are subject to codes which are statutory codes and which demand of them that they for example are balanced and not just that they get rights of reply and so on, which traditional defamation law would encourage, but also that they seek out opposing points of view to balance, to some degree, the program that they are broadcasting. But if they put that same topic and, and craft a show that they simply put on their website, the broadcasting code doesn't touch them. It's not applicable. Um, and, um, and, and it does illustrate the anomalies here because in South Africa too we have um, essentially adopted the kind of distinction that you get in American law, the Red Lion case and the Reno for the internet um, and the sort of lighter touch for the print media but um, quite frankly I agree that, that the rationales for all of those distinctions is fast disappearing. Yeah, I think a bit of history is also interesting in the discussion. When the printing press was created, look at all the regulation that came about. With the internet, have we had a commensurate concern? I don't think so. And actually, I think there's something instructive in that, returning to Tom's starting point with the Defamation Act 2013, 
does that act as a piece of 21st century uh, legislation recognize the internet in any real tangible way? Section 5 talks about uh, protection for uh, internet service providers. Beyond that, you would, if you just looked at the 2013 Act, you'd think we still have a print media paradigm and there's this little thing called the internet that's cropping up, but we only need to deal with this one aspect. And I think contrasting the history on that level is quite instructive for our discussion here and hopefully for those that have a, an opportunity to address the issues we're discussing. I think you make a, a really valid point there because this is a problem that is pervasive in English law. There's a failure to grapple with what the internet is. We, to deal with um, hate speech spread online, for instance, or threats spread online, we use the Communications Act, which is a pre-internet era statute that's designed to stop malicious post, you know, snail mail um, uh, and telephone calls. Yeah. and so on and so forth. So I, I think this is an issue that Parliament has never been comfortable uh, legislating with, nor indeed stepping in when it becomes apparent that the legislation is outdated. Yeah, I think that's right. I think also as well, it's interesting, and there's a kind of an American uh, dimension to this as well, it's interesting that the market in a way is taking the lead in civilizing uh, internet discussions. We have gone a long way from the origins of the internet, which was seen as almost a sort of free spirit, uh, wild west kind of place where you could do what you want. But now we've got big business involved. Big business generally likes to have uh, a reputation which sells, and the kind of reputation which sells is a kind of wholesome living reputation. And so we have seen people like Facebook Twitter, even Google and YouTube responding positively to the idea of regulation, even censorship, to create a kind of civil space in which people can feel uh, safe, inverted commas. Now, what kind of impact does this have on our notions of public interest and public interest discussion? Well, I think it's important recognizing what you say about the, the social media platforms exercising their own control, that the Internet's a remarkably resilient um, platform. And the reality is that, that even people who get banned on social media platforms are still on the Internet and still interacting with people on the Internet. And as a matter of fact, in some cases, they're still using those platforms because, you know, they, they have open and closed groups, and in some of the closed groups, it's very difficult for the social media platforms to regulate, mm. and so people can post and hate speech or whatever they want. Um, of course, you know, that's an area where between Europe and the United States, we have some significant differences about what, where, whether, whether we think there should be control of speech. Yeah, I, I, I think that it is interesting to see more, if you like, self-regulation on the part of the, the internet giants. Um, it does raise the issue um, which American free speech scholars will perhaps um, understand more than, more than um, many others, 
of whether we are going for the lowest, whether they are potentially going for the lowest common denominator um, insofar as, um, you know, uh, protecting speech uh, is concerned and whether that has an impact on public discourse. So, you know, I certainly recognise, uh, for instance, that there should be, um, and ideally there, there has to be some level of um, self-censorship by internet giants in relation and, and um, devices to deal with fake news and um, speech we all agree should not be disseminated, child pornography, etc. But um, apart from the areas where there is consensus, my worry is that overly self-regulating ultimately has an impact on public discourse, um, and I'm not sure how one deals with that problem. I'm not sure how effective it is. Yeah. I mean, interestingly enough, during the Protestant Reformation, um, it, it was punishable by death in France to have prohibited mm-hmm. publications. And the net effect of that was that those prohibited publications brought very high prices, which means people were willing to take the risk not only to print them, usually outside of France, to ship them in, and the censors couldn't catch them, and then they were sold, and a lot of people were very eager to see it. I mean, you see this in yeah. France today. You have yeah. Mabala Mabala Dudene, uh, and you know he's been banned in some respects in, in his performances, etc., have been banned in France. And I think the that effect is people are just a whole lot more interested in finding out about him because the question is, why is he banned? And, and what, is, what is the French government afraid of? And so I think to some extent it, it stimulates interest. We've seen a similar feature with the uh, far-right activist uh, Tommy Robinson, mm. otherwise known as Stephen Yaxley Lennon, here in the UK, um, who has styled himself as uh, a kind of citizen journalist is currently um, awaiting retrial for uh, an alleged contempt of court. Um, But the issue of um, people who either are or end up being alleged to be hate speakers, for example, um, having that sort of platform is that something that, that can be effectively regulated by uh, the online intermediaries? And where, where can the line be drawn? One, one would hope not. I mean, I, I don't tend to be afraid of speech. I mean, you know, the French will prohibit Holocaust denial. U.S. doesn't. And I'm not sure there are any fewer Holocaust deniers in France than there are in the U.S., and in neither country does it seem to be winning the day. Um, so, I mean, you still have Robert Porisone, you have other people in France who deny the Holocaust. It's just they get punished for it. And, but I'm not sure that, that that punishment, you know, suppression of ideas doesn't lead to the expungement of those ideas. I, I would come back to, uh, again, a bit of the history Gutenberg went bankrupt. And I'm pretty sure none of the uh, ISPs are going to let that happen if they have any say. And I think that's an important factor to keep in mind, that they're not going to regulate themselves out of business. Uh, On top of that, what mechanisms do they have in place? 
And I'd suggest that there's room for scrutiny. The, a very good example, I think, is with Facebook, when more recently they took down a photo uh, from the Vietnam War. Uh, some of people may know it as the Kim Phuc uh, photo. Others may know it as the, the girl who was running naked with mm -hmm. napalm burning her skin off. Mm -hmm. And Facebook had taken that down, said it doesn't conform to our values, and insinuated, if not explicitly stating, it was something along the lines of child pornography. Whereas, historically, the importance of that photo, though not that photo alone, was tremendous in terms of changing the view of the Vietnam War in the US. So I think we have two points here. One is the economics of the business, and two, what are the parameters that are being undertaken? Yeah, I think that undergirds the American approach, which is part of the reason we don't want people regulating speech is because you get these untoward decisions, you know, like regarding this photo. Or, or in France, you know, Bruno Volnich was, was criminally prosecuted for saying, I don't, I don't deny that the Holocaust occurred, but I don't know how many people were killed. I leave that to historians. And it's like, give me a break, you're going to criminally prosecute him for saying that? And my guess is, if a Jewish person had said, I don't know how many people were killed, they wouldn't have prosecuted him. Well, gentlemen, we've been talking for a while, and we are out of time on this particular session. But thank you very much uh, for your insights. It's been a pleasure talking to you. Thank you. Thank you. Okay, time for the news. And first up in the news, we have a defamation case uh, in the Supreme Court on the issue of meaning, which is spectacularly unusual. Um, what was this all about? The, uh, this case, I think, is very neatly captured by paragraph one of the Supreme Court decision, uh, which simply says this, uh, inverted commas, he tried to strangle me, inverted commas. What would those words convey to the ordinary reasonable reader of a Facebook post? So this is the case of Stocker and Stocker, um, which has just been handed down by the Supreme Court. And for listeners who may not be familiar with the intricacies of English defamation law, um, the, the question for the court here is whether the particular statement of which the claimant is complaining actually bears a defamatory meaning. Um, and uh, essentially, a meaning is defamatory if it would cause your average person with a reasonably accurate moral compass to think less of the claimant. Um, we call that test a test of uh, lowering a person in the estimation of right-thinking members of society, which is a bit of a mouthful but it's essentially causing good people to think less of the claimant. Um, and as part of that, the courts have to decide what a particular statement actually 
means. And that's not necessarily the same thing as the same as the words that are used. And you could say that A um, uh, tried to get B bumped off. And that doesn't literally mean very much at all. But we take from that the meaning that A tried to have B killed. So the words and the meaning can differ. Uh, It was Doctor Who who said uh, a footprint doesn't look like a boot. I think that sometimes holds in defamation as well. The words used are not necessarily the same uh, as uh, the meaning that we glean from them. Uh, But the words that were used in this particular case by the defendant, who was the the ex-wife of the claimant, were, he tried to strangle me in reference to physical altercation that they'd had some years previously. Uh, She made this statement on the Facebook wall of the husband's new partner. Yes? Yes. Well, the ex-husband. Yes, the ex-husband's new partner. And so um, the question for the court was, what exactly do the words he tried to strangle me mean? Because the claimant, the ex-husband, who was bringing the action for defamation, said they meant that he tried to kill her. It was an accusation of attempted murder, which obviously would be very, very defamatory. Uh, and the defendant, the, uh, the ex-wife, says, no, uh, this simply means... Uh, that he put his hands round my neck in a violent and aggressive fashion. Um, so, uh, what what happened to this? As it, I mean, it ended up in the Supreme Court, but how did it get there? Well, it ended up in the Supreme Court because the judge, at first instance, decided to uh, answer this question by consulting the dictionary. And so the dictionary gave him a meaning which led him to believe that the claimant's claim was right, that the average person on Facebook would understand this to be uh, an accusation of attempted murder. Uh, The Court of Appeal essentially agreed with the um, judge at first instance. And so the Supreme Court had to take a view on whether they agreed with what everybody else had done before them. So the judge looked up the word strangle in the dictionary and found, this is the first instance judge, yes. found that it bore two meanings according to the Oxford English Dictionary. It's always the Oxford English Dictionary in British judicial circles, it seems. Um, <laughs> the authoritative source. Um, and it, according to the OED, uh, the verb to strangle can mean to kill by means of strangulation or to put one's hands around a person's throat in, and squeeze it in an aggressive fashion. fashion. Yeah. So, um, and the judge says, well, it's got to mean one or other of those. That's the first mm. thing, which is problematic about the decision, according to the Supreme Court, because he limits himself. These are the only two possible meanings of that word. Um, And then says, well, because it says tried to do something uh, and uh, tried to do this, and because the defendant happens to be still alive, um, the judge says, well, he must have tried to do something that would cause her to be something other than the state she is still in. Um, And thus it must be that he tried to kill her. 
Yeah. And he says that is the meaning. And of course, then she can't prove the defense of truth because um, there's no evidence that he tried to kill her um, because she was not in any danger of dying. So that led to her being held liable uh, at first instance and in the Court of Appeal. But the Supreme Court comes along. The Supreme Court says, no, 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 no. That is not what it means because... When people read posts on Facebook, they don't automatically think, my, that must mean the dictionary definition of all of the words that are used, and then go and look <laughs> it up. They read things in a transient and passing fashion. They don't really dwell on it very much. And a reasonable Facebook reader of this would simply pick up from it, oh, he was just violent towards her, possibly involving putting hands around neck, but he was violent and unpleasant, and that's all. And the point is she was at least able to prove that, so she then succeeded with the truth defence. Yeah, I mean, what I found... I found it understandable, in a sense, what the Supreme Court was saying, because they were saying, well, if it, if we're not right, you would otherwise end up in a, a ridiculous situation where, um, had he said... Or has she said, he strangled me, uh, would amount to a lesser accusation than he tried to strangle me. Because um, patently, obviously, she is not dead. So yeah. he, he, he strangled me could only mean that he put his hands around her throat. He can't mean he killed me. Exactly. No reasonable reader would assume that she'd risen from the grave in order to post this on Facebook. So the, so the Supreme Court's logic is the commission of the act to strangle uh, can't amount to a lesser accusation than um, attempted commission of the act. He tried to strangle me. And therefore, the fact that uh, it was said he tried to strangle me uh, could only amount to the act of uh, strangulation and therefore couldn't be understood as uh, attempted murder. Now, I have to say, I struggle with this interpretation and find myself agreeing to, uh, find myself agreeing with what the Court First Instance and also the Court of Appeal said. And I think what troubles me most is the way the Supreme Court is so adamant that no one could have understood it in the way that the first instance judge in the Court of Appeal understood it. And yet when I saw those words, he tried to strangle me, the first thing I thought was, ah, so he tried to kill you by means of strangulation. That's how I would interpret those words. I... Don't take that meaning from it. I did not take that meaning from it when I saw it. Um, if I see a Facebook but he tried to strangle me, that's me that says he assaulted me by means of putting his hands around my throat and it was deeply unpleasant and violent and he should be punished for it. But I don't take an, in, an intent or attempt to kill from the usage of those words. Maybe I've just, maybe this is I grew up with The Simpsons and Homer Simpson strangling Bart on a weekly basis um, in a way that did him no harm whatsoever. But I, to me, 
you know, if you want to say to a person, watch out because this man tried to kill me, you say, he tried to kill me. And I know intention doesn't have a place in defamation, doesn't matter what the defendant intended to say, but uh, there, there is a contextual thing here where the reasonable reader ha- will be thinking, what is the meaning that this person intended to convey when they wrote it on the Facebook wall. Um, uh, that's going to be part of what the reasonable reader is thinking. I just don't think it's to do with killing. I, I, I could not fathom how on earth this ended up being so wildly overthought as to end up in the Supreme Court to be sorted out. And yet, when you just described Homer Simpson's actions, you said... Homer Homer Simpson strangled Bart. You didn't say Homer Simpson tried to strangle Bart. Well, he he tried and succeeded. No, sir. You have been hoisted by your own petard. Okay. (laughs) For the lay people in the room that may not have followed your logic, talk me through it again. I might try and wriggle out of it. If I have been hoisted, (laughs) then I'll accept the hoisting. Well, I think the difficulty that I have is the redundancy of tried to in her statements of he tried to strangle me. Now, I appreciate that I am scrutinizing this at a far deeper level. Anyone would ever do it on Facebook. Exactly. But I think those words are meaningful. And what the court of uh, what the Supreme Court is saying is that effectively those words mean nothing. Whereas at first instance in the Court of Appeal, they accepted that those words tried to clearly suggested an attempt to do something that was not successful. Now, if she she had written, as you said about Homer Simpson, he strangled me, then clearly the the second meaning that the uh, first instance court had come up with, which is the idea of uh, putting your hands around someone's throat until you um, cause some sort of harm, in this case bruising, that would be the meaning that people would take from it. But it's the tried to. He tried to do something. I, I just think you're investing a Facebook post with vastly more thought than would really have gone into it. Um I mean, take, for instance, completely different set of facts. But a few years ago, there was a chap who put a tweet out there in which he joked about wanting to blow up Robin Hood Airport. And uh, there was a fairly major overreaction by the the police. Um, Eventually, the guy was cleared of making any terrorist threats because it was so wildly daft. Of course, he wasn't going to try to blow up Robin Hood Airport. He was just frustrated at the slowness of his journey. Um, When one looks at it in context, yes, technically the words he used were something along the lines of, I don't remember the tweet, but something along the lines of blow up Robin Hood Airport, which seems pretty clear on its face. But it was a tweet in exasperation and a a bit of rage and a bit of humour. Um, that he threw out there. And here is a person, you put a Facebook post up. I mean, who hasn't put a Facebook post up or a tweet or something and used the wrong word and possibly gone back and edited it later or possibly not? Um, 
I mean, to be we've, we've, we, the fact that we've managed to spend uh, now 14 minutes and 15 seconds discussing <laughs> words tried to in the context of a Facebook post that probably took less than a, a tenth of the amount of time we've spent talking about it to, to compose um, it seems to me to be the very epitome of imbuing it with infinitely more uh, more significance than it deserves. And this is not like we're spending hours and hours discussing a Rembrandt or uh, uh, you know, a piece of Mozart, um, which for all we know, Mozart could have dashed something off in less than 14 minutes and probably. <laughs> um, um, but I can kind of see why people, when they, you know, if their job is to criticise art, will imbue art with vastly more time and importance than perhaps was intended. We don't know. Of course, some artists do spend many hours investing things with importance. But this was just a Facebook post, and I can't believe we spent 15 minutes talking about it. <laughs> and, and how much money to go to the Supreme Court? This is ludicrous. It's absolutely ludicrous. Well, it, it is. It is ludicrous to go all the way to the Supreme Court, but since they took it all the way there... I'm glad um, they did. They sorted it out. I mean, but it's madly took the Supreme... It had to go to the Supreme Court for it just to go, it's a Facebook post. Yeah. Okay. Well, look, there's lots of things that you've said that <laughs> I want to respond to, but I won't. But some of them I might respond to. Um, okay. yeah. Which is the fact that I think that when, when the court is asked to interpret the meaning of words and to take into account how a person could understand it for the supreme court to say oh no no one could have understood it as attempted murder i think is troubling because it can be understood as attempted murder because of those words tried to he tried to do something that he didn't accomplish and i think the minute the supreme court as it should have done recognizes that then it's got to agree with the Court of Appeal and the first instance judge. Well, I think that's the case. Then we might as well all just stop tweeting and Facebook posting. And I mean, what is going to put a more of a chilling effect on ordinary communication? We've spent six months doing these podcasts so far, and in most of the episodes... And you've sat there and you've told me we mustn't have chilling effects on this and that and the other. Chilling effects are really, really bad. Free speech, incredibly important. And here we have potentially, I think, the most pervasive chilling effects going to come in at all, which is whatever you post on Facebook, the High Court will dissect it in absolute minutiae and subject every word of it to dictionary definition scrutiny to decide what it means and you will be held liable until of course the Supreme court comes out and, and injects some common sense into the matter. But if, if the Supreme court hadn't, then that's open season on every daft exaggerated thing that we write. And that is not to say that the particular defendant in this case exaggerated any of thing of what happened to her. Um, but it, it, any other writer could well do that. And I just, Oh, I just think that's it's bananas. Can we talk about the white paper now? Yes. Speaking of more bananas thinking. Yeah. Well, here we are again, actually, and 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 maybe maybe you'll uh, maybe you'll take the same side in this. That'd be fun. 
Um, so this is the government has uh, put a white paper out on internet regulation. Yeah, so they've uh, – yeah, their white paper – I mean, bearing in mind the um, – the white paper has been a, a government uh, – uh, sorry, the white paper has been written by this present government that uh, has lost any sense of credibility that it uh, went into this parliament with. Um, it makes some pretty big claims, I think. The First of all, very first paragraph of it, it says the government wants the UK to be the safest place in the world to go online and then in the white paper it starts to sort of introduce some fairly disparate ideas for why uh, there needs to be greater uh, regulation uh, online uh, some of which are perfectly sensible and we can accept at face value but others i'm slightly more troubled by um so, for example, it, again, going back to the first sentence, the government wants the UK to be the safest place in the world to go online and the best place to start and grow a digital business. And so by um, sort of mentioning this idea of growing a digital business, I, it sort of makes you think, oh, right, okay, so this is a kind of economic analysis. Um, but then it starts to talk about citizen safety online, which is very sensible, very understandable. And one of the uh, ways in which I think the, the white paper is unassailable is the uh, growing concern about what children can access uh, through the Internet. Um, I'm, I'm not entirely sure that regulation is the answer to the problem, but I think the problem is real. And we've seen this in a number of different instances, one of which is uh, access to images of self-harm. Um, the other is, and this doesn't just apply to children, but access to um, terrorist propaganda um, and the disturbing images that can arise from that. And particularly, I'm thinking of what happened in New Zealand. Yes. So the proposal is that there will be sanctions on uh, websites that host this sort of content um, if they don't take steps to prevent access to harmful material. And these yes. sanctions can, in the white papers, uh, proposals, um, uh, go up to fines and even um, blocking of the websites. And I think it's that that's really created the sort of immediate controversy in it, the idea that uh, websites could be blocked because the content they contain is deemed to be harmful by someone, presumably a government agency. Yeah. Or regulator of some description. And there are some problematic phrases in here, and, and I agree with, with you that this is a white paper and we shouldn't get too um, excited or excitable about it. However... There's funny statements in there like like this. Illegal and unacceptable content and activity is widespread online. Now, it's all right talking about a legal norm or, or making a judgment on a legal issue, the illegal content. But what on earth does it mean when it says unacceptable content and activity? Suddenly we've introduced a moral dimension to the problem which, if we're not careful, is going to capture 
the kind of speech that we don't like. That, for me, captures the whole Leave Means Leave campaign. All of it. All of that is unacceptable. Now, dear, you see, now it is getting political, this this podcast. You can tell we're getting towards the end of the year, can't you? <laughs> I'm getting frustrated and the whole thing's turning political. Well, that, but if we look a bit further on, it says social media platforms use algorithms which can lead to echo chambers or filter bubbles where a user is presented uh, with only one type of content instead of seeing a range of voices and opinions. Yes. Right. So is that what's unacceptable? Well, exactly. Are they trying to suggest that uh, a regulator might be trying to enforce some kind of plurality value upon us all? We could merge the Daily Mail's website with the New Statesman. Just say it's going to be a new a new Daily Statesman. Well, exactly. And website put it all together, and then you won't have a filter bubble anymore. And it does talk about disinformation. I mean, it talks about what it sees as damage that's been done to our democratic uh, system and public confidence in a democratic system. And I have to say that the greatest proponent of that damage is Parliament itself in its current sitting. But the vision that's set out in this white paper also has some very strange ideas in it. The idea that the vision includes rules and norms for the internet that discourages harmful behavior. Now, what troubles me most about that is the idea of discourage. That's not gonna be effective regulation if you're simply trying to discourage people from doing things. Well, this is going out to consultation, right? So over the summer, there'll be some consultation on it. I think maybe we'll return to this in uh, in another podcast and devote a bit more time to the white paper when we've had a bit of time to digest it, see if we can round up one or two experts on this field um, and, uh, and give it a good raking over uh, in a subsequent podcast. Yes. Okay. We'll do that. Right. As for this episode, that brings us, I think, to uh, a good point at which to close. So uh, it's uh, goodbye from Paul. Goodbye. And it's goodbye from me. We will uh, see you next time. This episode of the Media Law Podcast featured Tom Bennett, City University of London, Paul Ragg, University of Leeds, Russell Weaver, University of Louisville, Kentucky, Dario Milo, University of the Witwatersrand, and partner at Weber Wenzel Johannesburg, and David Mangan, Maynooth University, Ireland.